Hey, if you're thankful for Nicole and the team, would you just thank them this morning? My goodness. Half of them are now headed to Cafe to do a sound check because they're going to do service in there as well, which is where Nicole has been um, for the last few months leading in that service, and, and we miss her. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rod Ellis. I get to be the worship pastor here, which means I'm usually doing the singing thing, not the talking thing. I'm honored, in fact, more honored than I have words to say to stand in the pulpit of Tim Harris, our pastor. Tim and his wife, Casey, you may not know, are away on a trip that the church gave them. I'll come back to that in a second. They are traveling the Holy Land, Um, maybe not the normal parts of the Holy Land that you think of, but where the Apostle Paul planted churches, because we are a church-planting church. You heard this morning that, that we get to sponsor a brand new church plant in Turkey, How awesome is that? We get to sponsor a church plant in Turkey. Well, Tim is traveling around with his wife, Casey, and they're looking at the the places where Paul went when he planted churches. And and they're seeing lots of other things too. Would you just remember to pray for them as they travel? They'll be gone another 10 days or so. And we want them as a church, we want them to experience everything God wants for them and, and to be taught the things that God wants to teach them that he can only, maybe chooses only to teach in that part of the world. I mentioned that we're a, a church planting church. About eight years ago, our church adopted a vision to plant 20 churches by 2020. It's like the second half of 2017, y'all. I mean, that's really close. But in the last two years, we have seen God do unbelievable things with our church planting vision. And just, again, remember to pray. These are lives that are going to be challenging. This morning, we're missing some folks because they're meeting as Journey Church today. Now, they haven't officially launched yet, but the launch team is worshiping this morning while we're here at Woodburn. That's so exciting. Planting a church in Bowling Green, planting a church in Turkey and all over the world. I love that I get to be a part of a church like that. And I'm grateful for our pastor. I'm grateful that he gives me the chance to stand here every few months. I love that. So he's been preaching a sermon all summer called Summer to Remember. And and he says often that we're terrible, horrible I mean, he uses big words like that, like, like severe words like that, terrible, horrible, at remembering the things we ought to forget and, and forgetting the things we ought to remember. We, we just get that backwards so often. And so we're trying this summer to remember. And today I want to share with you what it means to remember, to remember. And that may seem a little goofy. If you don't have a rock, um, I would love for you to come and grab one off the front of the stage because by the end of the sermon, everybody in the church building, everybody um, in this service or in cafe, when you guys are in your service, everybody needs to have a rock. You're going to write on it during the invitation time. Hopefully some of you, several of you brought Sharpies. There are some on the sides of the pews. If, if not, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. So since we're talking about remembering, remember with me. It was somewhere around October of 1994. Jackie and I were sitting in the obstetrician's office learning all kinds of things about pregnancy. Catherine was months away from making her debut into the world, and our wise doctor shared something we've never forgotten. He said, each phase of pregnancy prepares you for the next, and pregnancy prepares you for what comes after that. What do you mean, Doc? Well, you know those last six weeks, ladies, when you're expecting a child and you don't sleep through the night because you have to go to the bathroom? 
That's God's way of getting your body ready for the fact that you're not going to sleep through the night after that either. And he just uses what happens now to prepare you for what happens next. We experienced that in our story for sure. So God gave Jackie the biggest baby bump ever. Yeah, I heard ladies groaning and moaning. Yeah, um, that wasn't like the day Catherine was born, I don't think. But that was her nursery. We were in Columbus, Ohio. And Jackie had the biggest baby bump ever because we were going to have one of the biggest babies ever. Catherine came into the world a month, uh, well, November 18th of 1994, weighing a whopping, ready? 11 pounds, 11 ounces. I do have her permission to show you that picture. Otherwise, those stones you have would become flying in my head. (laughs) And just about three years later, Emily came along, and in the spirit of true sibling rivalry said, I'm going to outdo my sister. So Emily weighed in at 11 pounds, 12 ounces. There they are, our giant babies. I don't know how that happened. I was like seven and a half pounds when I was born. Um, That was obviously a long time ago. So moving right along, um, God uses the last trimester of pregnancy to prepare you for the first trimester of your child's life. And he just keeps doing that over and over and over. It's true in your journey of faith as well. God prepares you in this season for what's going to happen in the next season. Our pastor says it all the time. God is using what happens now to prepare you for what happens next. And today, I want us to think about, in the context of God is using what happens now to prepare you for what's going to happen next, to read 1 Samuel chapter 7. So would you grab a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. It's early in the Old Testament. If you're not used to using a Bible, you'll find it just, I don't know, a fifth of the way in, something like that. 1 Samuel 7. While you're finding 1 Samuel 7, I'll set the scene for you. Ancient Israel was in big trouble. They had an arch enemy known as the Philistines. The Philistines were at battle with Israel for hundreds of years. I don't mean like hundreds of days or months. I mean years, centuries, generation after generation after generation had only known war with the Philistines. They even captured Israel's most prized and cherished possession or item, the Ark of the Covenant. And when they captured it, they they ran off with it. And um, that's kind of an interesting story. Read 1 Samuel 6. It's kind of cool how the Ark of the Covenant makes the Philistine God like fall on his face over and over again, which is kind of, I don't know, I just think that's comical. Um, What the leaders of Israel couldn't see while all this battle was going on was that God was at work behind the scenes. He was using multiple towns, places like Ashdod and Gath and Ekron, not to be confused with Elkton, um, Ekron. And eventually the Philistines were so desperate to get rid of the ark, they sent it away with gifts of gold just to get it out of their country. So ironic how they were trying to get rid of a powerful God while Israel was worshiping powerless gods. So there you go. First Samuel chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 3. Samuel, by the way, is a prophet in the Old Testament. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you 
from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and in a great ceremony, drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day or fasted and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. Catching what's going on? Israel's gathered. They're having this big worship celebration. The Philistines hear about it. They say, we've got them all in one place. Let's go get them. So they take off. They advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day. And the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to a place below beth slaughtering them all along the way. So Samuel took a large stone, there's a hint, took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshana. He named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel again for some time. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. The Israelite villages near Ekron and Gath, remember I mentioned those earlier, that the Philistines had captured were restored to Israel along with the rest of the territory that the Philistines had taken. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites in those days. It's the word of God for us today. So let's go back kind of up maybe, and take a look at the picture of, of the story from a, from a wide angle or, or a high view. The first thing I want to tell you is that in this story, there was an enemy. I know none of you have ever had an enemy internally or externally, but they had an enemy. The, the Israelites had a, a clearly defined enemy, and they were against them at every turn. They couldn't escape the enemy. There was an opposing force. Remember, it was hundreds of years that the Philistines were at war with the Israelites. It seems that page after page, the Old Testament is filled with battle after battle. Sometimes they win, other times Israel wins. There were centuries, generations. Can you imagine being like the fifth great-grandchild and all you've ever known is war? I mean, in our country, we are so privileged that we don't know what that's like. But they had only known war. That's so important. I don't even think they could imagine what peace looked like. So there was an enemy, but there was also a crisis. And this is really important. There were people coming after them. It wasn't just business as usual. They were gathered to worship, and the Philistines were mounting an attack. They were on their way. This was imminent. There was a crisis. It wasn't just, hey, someday we'll get to that. It was, it was really important. The ark had been taken. 
You know, it's hard for us in our day to imagine how devastating that is because we've grown up, most of us, or if you're new to church, maybe you haven't grown up this way, but, but probably our culture has taught you that God is everywhere. God lives in you. God lives in me. God's just everywhere. But in the Old Testament, that's not the way they thought. It was an entirely different worldview, and for them, God was located in a place. In, in fact, not just in the temple, but in the Ark of the Covenant and, and on the Ark of the Covenant. If you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to the Ark of the Covenant. God wasn't going to come to you. It's a really different way of thinking about the world, and that's the only way they knew, and that thing had been taken. The thing, the Ark, the presence of God had been taken away. This was a crisis. Their God was gone, or so it seemed. And then, and this is key, there was repentance. Samuel could see that the people were aware of the crisis. They knew they were in trouble, and so he called them together and said, all right, there's trouble. Come on, get together. Huddle up. And he called them to repent. Now, repentance is a really interesting word. I, I don't know how, what your experience has been with that word, but, but mine's kind of changed over the years. I've been walking with Jesus for a long time now, and I've been in a lot of church services, and I've heard a lot of sermons, and, and my understanding of the word repentance has really grown. Like, I used to think that it just meant you came forward, you got on your knees, and you cried, and that's what repentance was. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, by the way. I think that's often an essential part of repentance, that you have to feel internally the emotion of the, the weight of, of your sin, of your wrongness, of your brokenness. But that's not where it ends. That's just where it begins. It goes from regret to remorse to, to really changing the way you think. To, to repent means, and, and some of you have seen an evangelist do this, you're walking this way and you turn around and you go, this way. Well, that's what repentance is, but it's repentance of the mind. Your mind is going this direction, and you say, hey, that's wrong. I'm chasing after Baal or Ashtoreth or other things we'll talk about. Instead, I need to turn my mind around and think, I'm going to think about Jesus. I'm going to think about truth. And so they repented in all of their hearts and all of their minds, and it affected all of their behavior, and there was repentance. Here's the way it says it in the Bible where we just read. If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, isn't that an interesting word to start with? If. Because if you don't want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, the rest of this just doesn't matter. But they knew. They were in a crisis. They were in, they were in trouble. So Samuel said, if you want to return, this is also an interesting word. Return. Because there was a day when Israel was facing the right direction, and they turned away from God. And now they need to return to the Lord. I wonder if that's true of any of us today. Return to the Lord with all your hearts. Half-hearted repentance is no repentance at all. With all your hearts. Get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Turn your hearts. There it is again. Turn and return. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey. The obedience isn't just the sadness of I've done wrong. Obedience is a determination to do what's right. So repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of heart and a change of behavior. 
And when you come to church or you come in prayer to our Heavenly Father and, and you repent, it, it's not just you saying you're sorry, although it has to begin there. It's you saying, I'm going to think differently, which is going to change the way I act as well. So there was repentance. And then, after repentance, there was victory. There was victory. They won. And I don't mean like they had a nice little skirmish and Israel went home and had steak that night. I mean, they won. Like God intervened miraculously, thundered his voice from heaven. Probably not like Bill Cosby and Noah, I want you to build an ark. If you've never heard that, go on YouTube. It's hilarious. This is, you know, the Bill Crosby, Bill Cosby before all the, yeah. A voice thundered from heaven, thundered from heaven, and it freaked out the Philistines. And so they started running away. I think I would too, don't you? And they were so confused, there was so much chaos that the Israelites just chased after them and slaughtered them. They defeated them. There was not just a little skirmish win. There was big victory. That's what repentance can do for you and me as well. And then finally, there was peace. And these generations of Israelites who had never known anything but battle and war and loss... For the, the rest of Samuel's lifetime, they knew peace. Most of you know the Old Testament or the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom means it's as if everything is the way God wants it to be. That's what they had. There was an enemy. There was a crisis. There was repentance. There was deliverance. And there was peace. You know what the interesting thing about this story is that's not just the story of Israel. That's the story of you too. If you're a Christian, this is what happened for you. There was an enemy. His name is Satan. He's sneaking around seeking to kill and destroy everything that's good. And there was a crisis. We call it sin. And the consequences of sin is death. And the only way out of sin, the only way out of death is repentance. And so you repented with all of your heart. And you said, I'm not going to go the old way anymore. I'm going to go the new way now. And because of your repentance, there was deliverance. And you were saved from your sin, as we like to say. There was deliverance. You are no longer bound for eternal separation from God, but eternal union with God. That's a big turning. And then there is peace. Now, I'm not going to be so naive as to say that there is always perfect peace. Because I have anxiety moments. For example, preaching in the place of a great preacher. And you probably have some anxiety moments too. But you can have peace in the midst of them. And you can have victory over them. And someday you will have absolute deliverance from all of that. So Christian, this is your story. Isn't that beautiful? How the story of God and the people of God becomes the story of the person of God. I just love that. That's called the gospel. That's the good news. That even though you have an enemy and there is a crisis, there is hope. So when you repent, there is deliverance and there will be peace.
So I got on my social media channels and I asked some friends, I said, tell me with one or two words where God has given you victory, where you were delivered from something. And I was expecting, you know, 20 or 30 people to respond with some really cool things. I was absolutely blown away when I heard from more than a hundred people on Facebook and Twitter. And they, almost all of them gave two different examples of where they had had victory in their life. Just so you can get a scope of it, I decided to put all of those words on the screen at one time. So look at this list. Probably can't see it. So I'll just pick out a few of them and, and, and share with you what I think this has to do with First Samuel 7. Somebody said freedom. Anybody in here ever feel bound up? Maybe by addiction or fear? Maybe by tradition or your past? Maybe by your family of origin? I often experience those kinds of bindings, but God can give victory from freedom. God can also give victory, and I was so proud of my friend who posted on Facebook for everybody to see that God had delivered him from an addiction to porn. I knew this kid when he was a teenager. Um, I was barely more than that at the time. And, and God delivered him from addiction to porn. Some of you are struggling with that today. Can I say that out loud in church? It's just hard. I mean, even when you woke up this morning, it was hard for you to get to church without thinking about it. It is an addiction. And as hard as it might be for some of us to understand that, it is absolutely oppressive. And it feels like there's no way out. Like the battle will never end. I'm here to remind you that with repentance, there can be deliverance and peace. One of my other friends said, weight loss. Oh, I need to like spend a weekend with that person and find out what, it, what are you doing? How, do you have, how did you have victory over weight loss? Because it's a place where I still need victory. I'm not done yet. God's not finished with me. I'm so grateful for that in so many ways. And one of them is you can have weight loss. Comparison free. I, I be honest, as Tim says, water came to my eyes when I saw that. Comparison free. Can you imagine walking through your life and never comparing yourself to anybody? Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, when I hear that, I think, yeah, I'm not going to compare myself to anybody that has a bigger house or a nicer house or nicer clothes or a newer car or more friends or a better marriage. Or, you know, I think about comparing myself to people who are above me, but you know what? It's just as dangerous to compare ourselves to people that we think are beneath us. And I carefully say we think because there is no, there is no above or below. There's only humanity and this person, God had given them victory so that they were living comparison-free. Wow, what a world that would be. Somebody else posted, pardoned past. Oh, I'm so glad that God fully pardons. It's better than a presidential pardon, by the way, because it lasts forever. Pardoned past. Isn't that beautiful to think that you can have victory by being absolutely pardoned from anything and everything in your past? Somebody else wrote indescribable peace. Not just peace, but indescribable peace. I love that. That in the midst of anguish or turmoil or frustration or any of the other things that we might imagine, this person, God had given them victory over through having indescribable peace. Somebody else said restoration. I wonder about that when I don't know the story. I wonder, is it restoration in a marriage or with a child or a sibling? Is it restoration of 
maybe ministry, out of ministry and restored to ministry. I, I don't have any idea what that particular story is, but it's one of my favorite words. I love the fact that our God is a God of restoration. Somebody else said marriage. I'll bet many of us in the room could raise our hands and say, yeah, me too. I know I could. God gave me and Jackie deliverance in our marriage. When we thought it was over, God said not yet and miraculously saved our marriage. I'll tell you that story sometime if you want to sit down one-on-one. I would love to do that actually. Doesn't stop there. Somebody made or shared this word and I thought that's got to be a typo. Kintsugi. And so I looked it up on Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, and it turns out that kintsugi is a real thing. It's the art of broken pieces. And when I looked it up on Google, of course, there were pictures of the art of broken pieces. It's an ancient Japanese tradition where instead of taking a bowl that's broken and throwing it away, you take the bowl and you make it beautiful again and use it. That's how God gave this person victory. They were a broken piece that God had made beautiful. One more, victory with restoration. These are real people with real stories. And if you're walking with Jesus and you're discouraged in your faith, I just want to remind you that that here are somewhere around 200 examples of where just within my circle of social media friends, the people that happened to see it the last couple of days said, God gave me victory over these things. And if you're not a believer, if you're not walking with Jesus, if you've not chosen to follow him, I want to tell you that this is not like pie in the sky, go to church, pretend you're good and everybody else is bad. That's not what we do here. This is what we do here. Maybe to say it better, this is what God does here. It's real. Real victory in real battles because of a real God. But the only way to have victory is repentance. This is the most mind-boggling thing God showed me in preparing for this sermon. Maybe we don't have more Ebenezer's because we don't have more repentance. And so would you grab your rock? Again, everybody should have a rock. I want you to write on your rock. If you don't have one, there's some down here. Come on and get one. There's some Sharpies on the sides of the pews or in cafe. You'll have them in there as well. If you brought your own, thank you for bringing your own Sharpie. Maybe you could share with somebody. The rocks were washed, but this one's still a little dusty. Sorry about that. What I'd like to do with your rock, if you're a Christian, I would like for you to write on one side of your rock when Jesus saved you. When this story became your story. For me, it would be September of 1973. You might not remember the month. That's okay. Actually, I think it was September 8th of 1973. You might not remember the day. You might not remember the year, but just get close. And on one side of your rock, write the date that Jesus saved you. When you went from living for the enemy to living in grace. And then on the other side of the rock. Here's what, I'd, here's what I'd really love for you to do. I would love for you to think of the last time God gave you a big victory. It could have been last night. 
It could have been last month or last year. Whatever it was, you don't need to write down your story or what it was. I just want you to write the date. The last time God gave you victory. Because he isn't a one-time victory giver. He's a time and time again victory giver. In the passage, 1 Samuel 7, this is referred to as an, an Ebenezer or a stone of help. How has God helped you? When did God save you? And when did God give you victory? If you like to write, maybe that time God gave you victory, you could write out that story this afternoon. Just take 10 minutes. Sit down with a legal pad and a piece of paper, not a computer. I'm a computer guy. But there's something significant to writing with your hand. And write what God did for you. And then maybe you could take this stone You could take that piece of paper and you could sit it on your mantle or on a bookshelf or or on the dresser in your bedroom. And every time you walk by it, you can say, thus far, God has helped me. Because what God has done in the past and what God is doing in the present is preparing you for what is in your future. And if you will remember to remember, there is no limit to what God can do with what comes next. On one side, the date you got saved. If you haven't written down that date because that date hasn't happened yet, today can be the day. You can write July 30, 2017, and you won't have to worry about whether or not you remember it because you'll have your stone of help. On the other side, God gave me victory. And then write it out. Can I tell you that I wish I had done that, oh, I don't know, 50 or 60 times in the last 25 years? Because I'd love to have a collection of those for my daughters to read. You see, the people of Israel, when they came to that Ebenezer, that stone of help, they would ask their parents, what's that for, Mom? Dad, why is this big stone in the middle of the field? And they would say, ah, let me tell you the story. Samuel called the people together. We were gathered to worship. We poured out a praise offering to him. We heard the enemy coming, and so we begged Samuel, pray for us. And God spoke miraculously from heaven and scared the Philistines away, and we chased them down, and we had victory that day, and there has been peace in the land ever since. That's why you don't know about war, son, because there's been peace ever since. That's what the stone of help does. How will you tell your story to your children and to your grandchildren? How will you keep it for generations to come? Because the God who has helped you in the past is preparing you for what he's calling you to in the future. Can I get an amen for that? All right, I'm going to say it again because some of you didn't hear it. That's why you didn't say amen. The God who has given you help in the past is the same God who is preparing you for your future. We remember to remember because what God has done prepares us for what God is going to do. We're going to sing a song called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The second verse of that hymn says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither, as in up to this time and place, 
by thy help I come. And so when we sing, I'm going to invite you to raise your Ebenezer. Now, for some of you that aren't as um, Bapticostal as the rest of us, raising your Ebenezer might just be, I'm just going to hold it up a little right here. But for some of you, we'll hold it up with victory. Here I raise my Ebenezer. God has helped me. For some of you, though, you're going to bring your Ebenezer down front and you're going to get on your knees and you're going to thank him because you haven't yet. And he wants you to raise your Ebenezer. And for a few of you, maybe, maybe for a few of you, you're going to come and say, today is the day I repent. I'm going to change the way I think so I can change the way I behave, which is going to mean I become somebody different. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the lesson you taught Jackie and me sitting in the doctor's office 23 years ago that you are a God who uses what's happening now to prepare us for what's next. I thank you so much for a pastor who is encouraging us to remember the things we ought to remember and forget the things we ought to forget and quit getting that backwards. I thank you, Father, that not only is preparing the reality of pregnancy and new life, but it's the reality of faith that we can remember how you have helped us in the past because it's going to equip us and prepare us and give us faith for what's going to happen in the future. So would you help us raise our Ebenezers today with our hands, with our hearts, with our minds, and with our souls? Tune our hearts to sing your praise for you are the God who has helped us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who helped us the most when he died on a cross. In the name of Jesus, amen.